You're listening to Gender, A Wider Lens. I'm Stella O'Malley, a psychotherapist in Ireland. And I'm Sasha Ayad, an adolescent therapist in the United States. Since 2016, my practice has been exclusively dedicated to gender-questioning teens and families impacted by gender dysphoria. I also work with gender-questioning teenagers, and I facilitated support meetings for families and individuals who've been impacted by gender issues. We're curious about the concept of gender and how it's unfolding in the wider culture. Join us as we look at gender through a wider lens. Joe Burgo is a clinical psychologist and psychoanalyst who's been in practice for almost 40 years. He also writes books for a popular audience, mostly focused on shame and narcissism. In this episode, Joe explains how a sense of shame can be the root cause of gender dysphoria and how gender transition can become idealized as a cure for all kinds of different shame. Gay shame, outsider shame, survivor of sexual abuse shame, feeling weird or different shame, and so on. The impact of the medical model on society is also lifted up as Joe describes how his depth approach to psychological pain is often dismissed in a world seeking solutions for every problem and a pill for every ill. We think you'll really enjoy this conversation with Joe Burgo. Hi, Sasha. Hi, Stella. How's it going today? Very good. It's a lovely summer's day here in Ireland. Yes, and it's a very hot day here in Arizona. It's a, It's been in the hundreds already, so it's warm. Um, we have a wonderful guest today. We are speaking with Joe Burgo, who is a member of the Gender Exploratory Therapy Association and a clinical psychologist and psychoanalyst. So, Joe, welcome to the program. We're glad to have you. I'm really glad to be here. So you got in touch with us in, in Geta because you have also been thinking about um, gender identity, trans identities, gender dysphoria. And you mentioned before we started that these topics came across your radar long before the recent explosion of trans identity. So maybe we can start back there and tell us about um, your kind of earlier years around this topic. I've, I've been in practice for almost 40 years, I'm sorry to say. Um, but one of one of the formative cases of my early practice, in fact, it was a, a young woman who was referred to me in my internship before I was even um, licensed. And she was 18, came in dressed in combat boots, like a like a boy, short haircut, you know, really insisted that she was a boy. Um, we didn't have, you know, gender identity ideology then, so the idea of transition wasn't on the radar. So I had to learn what all this meant, what this was all about. Um, and what I learned from that experience was that she had loaded all sorts of different things, what I would now call shame about herself, her sense of damage, her her non-conforming identity. She had loaded it all into um, being a girl, and in particular into her anatomy. Um, she had horrible um, shame feelings about having a vagina. She she really believed that she wanted to be a gay man, really. Being a gay man was the ideal. And it, so sorting all that out took years, but, but I learned that, you know, you can confuse all sorts of issues with gender identity, and you have to, you know, you have to slowly tease it out to really understand what it means. And, um, you know, nowadays, the idea that you would take time to figure out what something means is 
considered unethical, right? You're, you can't question it, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying challenge it, not saying, are you sure you're trans? I mean, you can't even just explore what it all means. Well, that that's a debatable question, but I, I hear you. Certainly some people might say that, but mm-hmm. I, think there, I think there's still room for us to stand firm and defend the therapeutic process. But yeah, I, I, I hear what you're thinking. What year was that when you met this person? Oh, you're going to ask me to def- well, in tell you how old I <laughs> So this, this, <laughs> this was probably 40 years ago, right? It's right at the beginning. So what does that make it? 82? Uh, 82. Yeah. Right. right. And did this person transition or did they? Come she, in? no, she eventually, it was like, I have to say the most satisfying, meaningful experience of my entire practice was helping this woman come to terms with being a woman and liking being a woman. And she married and had children and loved being a mother. Oh, oh Stella, you know that story. I know. Oh. I, I, when <laughs> I heard beautiful. your story, it, it rang true, but it really is. It was beautiful. Yeah. I think you've just lifted something that's really important. It's beautiful. Self-acceptance is beautiful. It's 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 a gift that when you have it, you've got it. Yeah. You've got it. Like you you kind of go, Yeah, I'm all right. Like I'm okay. Mm-hmm. And and you also were able to, I mean, it's fascinating that that was also one of your first significant clinical experiences as a, a trainee, not yet licensed. I mean, that's a beautiful way to start out your career. And you were also able to lift up for this patient um, a pattern of running away and a pattern of misattributing certain aspects of herself to the problem and the shame. And that's a special gift. And I think that's why uh, therapy is so valuable because you can bring that insight into somebody's understanding and their process. And when we have patterns of just running away from something, they don't really resolve the issue. So what you were able to do is kind of get to the root of the problem, which is so fantastic. When you were working with this client at the time, you mentioned there was no gender identity ideology per se. So I would be very interested in whether or not you experienced a lot of resistance as you tried to understand the meaning of your client's symptoms. Um, I did not. She um, she was, I would say, on on the borderline, in the borderline range, and she formed a very sudden, intense attachments to me, a transference right away. Mm-hmm. So we, we were involved in transference issues right away. She, um, she committed to the work pretty intensely from the beginning. Um, so I was, la- I was lucky. I was really lucky to have her as one of my earliest cases, I, you know, to cut my teeth on those issues. Yeah. And when, when did you meet it again or how did it evolve since then? I've, you know, I've, I've worked with a lot of people and I've known, you know, men who wished they were women and women who wished they were men, not necessarily because they felt they were trapped in the wrong body, but I've seen a tendency to idealize the other sex as if they've got it better. I, you know, in my own analysis and my own therapy, when I was very young, I went into therapy when I was 18 and I had some issues myself along these lines. I thought I would have preferred to be um, a woman. And my my analyst really helped me understand that my idea of being a woman was something like being, um, you know, like a, a well-tended baby where 
mm-hmm. you were just looked after and you didn't have to worry about you know, adult concerns. And it was just totally fantasy, you know, idealized yeah. fantasy. That's fascinating. Yeah. yeah. I've known other men who thought the same thing. Right. Yeah, I definitely, I, I definitely have run into that. Sometimes men think that women have it so easy and that when you're a woman, everything is handed to you. So there's definitely a lot of fantasy. It's, of course, not grounded in necessarily a real experience, but it's the projection of the male onto the female and what he imagines her life is like. And I find that really interesting. And these are great examples of very rich topics that you can cover in therapy if these are issues that come up for you. And I, I see these same kind of idealizing fantasies involved in trans-identified youth that once they transition, it's going to be wonderful and they'll leave behind all of the troubles that they have now as if, right, that's the idealized solution to so many things. Yeah, it's like the grass is always greener, right? I think it's that mm-hmm. basic principle. Yep. But you you have quite, a, from what I can gather from, and you've you know written some extraordinary books, I think you have a very psychoanalytical kind of understanding of gender as a, as a defense mechanism. If I'm if I'm right, yeah. would you would you tell us where you're you're because I think it's really really thought out. You're you're more thought out than many of us, I think, with gender. It's a, it's a pleasure to to hear it. Well. My ideas really um, stem from my understanding of shame and a particular kind of shame. I mean, shame is is out there. We always talk about it, but most people think about shame in like Brene Brown or, or John Bradshaw terms. It's this toxic influence from outside. Um, I think that's all true. I agree with all that. I focused in my work, particularly um my work with people who have come from really damaging backgrounds who might be on the borderline spectrum and you know that when your when your development goes seriously wrong when there are major attachment issues in childhood when you come from a family that's marked by violence um or you're sexually or physically abused i think what you what you're left with is this sense later in life that your development went seriously wrong that you're the way I hear it from my patients is that I'm, I'm a effed up piece of shit. I'm damaged Mm. goods. I'm only worth the the junk heap. I'm, I'm irreparable. It's this kind of agonizing sense that you're, you're just so different that there's nothing to be done with you. And I think when that becomes really unbearable, the most common defense against it is, and I, this is all going on unconsciously, this is not a thought out process, is the this creation of an idealized false self to mask all that sense of damage. That's, that's the dynamic uh, at the heart of narcissism, um, where I'm, I'm not shame ridden, I'm not damaged, I'm not inferior. In fact, I am an amazing superior person. And, and in fact, you are the one who is fucked up you know you're the, you're mm-hmm. the loser um i think i see that dynamic a lot in the the desire to transition is and, and if you you know i've listened to how many hours of benjamin boyce interviews <laughs> hearing all these people say this exact thing 
I thought I was going to leave that all behind. I thought I would leave behind all my damage, all my shame, all my anxiety, and I was going to become this new and improved version of myself. That, that to me, is at the heart of this drive um, for many people, not for everybody, but for many people to transition. It's, to, it's the idealized cure for all sorts of problems. Sasha, you've talked about this too, right? Mm-hmm. And would you say, because I, I, I'm very interested in what you're saying, would you say that would also apply to, let's say, childhood onset as much as it would teenage onset or adult onset gender dysphoria? I will say I don't know. Um, I've never worked with anybody who had that. Um, I would love to, to be able to explore that, but I would think there would be an awful lot of shame associated with f- feeling so different, you know, so mm. that, that you're really, you're, you're just not like other people. Mm. Um, I was listening to, well, re- reading an article through this audio app that I use. Um, there's a detransitioner, male detransitioner named Tulip, who's been writing oh, yeah. incredible blogs. Incredible. I've been reading them. I was reading one this morning. Fantastic. And, you know, yeah. he, he's talked about how there were, he, he realized that he was gay, attracted to other men pretty young. And there were all of these messages um, from his family, not necessarily about him, just in general about homosexuality. And he said, you know, I used to pray that God would not make me gay. Like, and there was this deep, deep sense of shame and just trying to run away from himself and of course compound with other issues. Like he struggles with some OCD and things like that. But I think this, this deep sense of shame can probably occur at any stage in the process. And perhaps it's like what a person is ashamed about maybe a little bit different in a childhood onset versus a teenage onset gender dysphoria or something like that. But I think this is really Uh, so crucial for people to grapple with because the current narrative around this is really an attempt to look at everything through rose-colored glasses. And there's no acknowledgement that if a person is rejecting their body, that there may be shame involved. Instead, it's seen as something that is just a natural variant in human identity, which, which doesn't make any room for some of these darker experiences. No, and you know, Tulip, the the shame of being gay, that's that's really worries me a lot that so many gay kids are being told they're trans and they're they're they leap at it because they're ashamed of being same sex attracted. I think that's huge. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, I, I know Tulip. I'm delighted that he's joining the Genspec team. And it seems to me that the male detransitioners are surprisingly talking about shame a lot. Surprisingly to me, I didn't know their story until really relatively recently. I suddenly had a huge amount of contact with a lot of male detransitioners. And so I've quite quickly been immersed in their story. And I'm hearing what you're saying, Joe, um, about Tulip and others, that there's a lot of shame involved. And I'm slightly surprised and a little bit, um, I, I thought it was going to be a different story. I thought there was going to be a different narrative. And I'm I'm hearing all I would say more shame from the males than I'm hearing from the females. There's a there's a real issue around becoming a male these days that I think is understated. Yeah, I mean the 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 young women. There seems to be lots of issues about 
discomfort with their bodies as they become the objects of the male gaze and coming to terms with sexuality. Some of them have problems with same-sex attraction, but the, I, I, I've seen the same thing, Stella, that there's a lot of shame about same-sex attraction with the young men, even though we're supposedly in this more tolerant age, right? Yeah. Right. And I also see that there's a lot of shame around sexuality in general, right? And um, the male detransitioners or even the, the male to female trans women who have been speaking just about the complex ambivalence, right, involved in transition, talk about the fear of testosterone, the fear of this overpowering sexual drive. And I think that that is a thread that you see both in same-sex attracted and also opposite-sex attracted uh, males who transitioned is like they're afraid of their own sexuality and their own desires and their own arousal and like what that means and whether they will be like out of control. Like that's a sense that I get around what is testosterone doing to me or what is testosterone going to do to me. So I think shame around sexuality seems to be a part of this. And I'm wondering if in your explorations of shame, is that something you've thought much about, not just about which orientation a person has, but just around sexuality in general? Um, I wanted to ask you first, though, do you think that what we're, what we're seeing about men has to do with the cultural moment where the idea of masculinity is kind of under assault and is being criticized? I mean, I'm, I'm happy to hear from Stella, too. I think probably it's a little bit of, of two things. I think there are some males who, in another time and place, may not have spent so much time ruminating over the possibility that their sexuality is oppressive or toxic or violent or something like that. And then there's probably a group of males that are getting wrapped up in this gender thing that would have felt shame about that regardless. Like, I think the whole coming of age process around puberty, regardless of which culture you live in, it's really difficult to come to terms with the fact that we sometimes are animalistic, right? All of us. And, and that's very difficult coming out of the, quote, innocence of childhood. So I think there are probably some people for whom the cultural moment is having a bigger impact than others. I, I don't know. What do you guys think? Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think that there's a, a difficulty with becoming a man and becoming a woman. In a way, it was always there. There was always, you know, I remember when I was a kid and my, my brother... I remember he had this kind of like men, men were these kind of these otherworldly creatures and nothing to do with him as a little boy. And I shared it with him like men. And I, I get it. I think it was always there. But I think it's so, we, we, we seem to have really derailed a generation of young people who just don't seem to be able to kind of find a place in their development so that they become you know, comfortable with becoming a man or becoming a, a, a woman. You know, like when you think of those books on becoming a person and stuff like that, we haven't really, in a way, it's something about the childhood this generation are receiving. It doesn't seem to be paving a way for them to see how they can become men and women. I'm not sure why, but it really seems to, between 10 and 20, they lose themselves. And you could say it's the hypersexualized environment. You could say it's toxic masculinity, toxic, fem toxic, fem but then you would say, but where's that coming from? 
why? I, I, I really think we do seem to have reached a, a nadir of, of understanding why the sexuality of, of, of between the ages of 10 and 20 threatens us so much that it derails everybody. It seems to derail, not everybody, but it derails so many people, as far as I can see. This is the point where we have to bring up internet porn, right? I mean, because if you're exposed to internet porn at an early age when you haven't sorted out your sexuality and what it means, my gosh, how mm-hmm. confusing, frightening. Right. I mean, th- th- that might mess you up, you know? And it comes up again and again, and it feels so prudish to say it, but it comes up so often. It came up before I got involved in gender. I was talking about teenagers who were freaked out about the porn that they were watching. And they didn't start freaked out. They started curious Mm -hmm. and they got led into weirder and darker worlds. And they told me about it. This is when I had nothing to do with gender. And I was going, wow, this, this easy access to such strange porn is not going well. Mm-hmm. And now it feels that it's absolutely it's met the trans issue or it's it's become very connected. And when I say it, you know, to a group of people, if I'm giving a talk, they just look at me like now, what is she talking about? And I'm like, really? Yeah, I give a lot of talks these days around gender. And that often feels like a jump too far. They're like, what? Porn? Why would that have yeah. an impact? I think it's it's interesting, like a big theme that I've noticed is that people have no idea what's going on. I think a lot of adults, unless they have a child who's going through this and they start figuring out what's my kid looking at on the internet or what are they doing on Reddit, a lot of people are so naive about what's actually happening in the online lives of children. And I think that's part of the problem. You know, you don't want to sound like a fear monger, but that's certainly a reality. And, you know, you brought up this issue of internet porn. Uh, Joe, what what do you think? How does that um, relate to shame? What happens, let's say, when a young person who hasn't sorted out anything about their sexuality stumbles into We're talking about like pornographic videos and images that are not just like two people in love, you know, having a a nice mutual intimate relationship. We're talking about bizarre and often degrading and aggressive and really violent images. So what happens to a person who's really young, a kid, and what, what does that do to shame or how does that impact shame? Well, I, I think if you if the kids get deeply involved with porn, say they develop a kind of porn addiction, I think it becomes very secretive and shame ridden. And they they feel awful about themselves for being caught up in this world. And yet they can't break the addiction. I think with lots of addictions, you see this kind of cycle where there's this shame about it that leads you to rely on the addiction more to to temporarily alleviate the shame, but in a way that just makes the shame worse. You know, I, mm-hmm. I've seen that in, in sex addiction. I've seen it in drug addiction. Um, but I think being involved in this really creepy, disturbing world just induces shame. Yeah. And so you talked about narcissism as a defense for shame. And 
I think the gender question is interesting because there are so many different contradictory elements that seem woven in. So, for example, I think there's a huge amount of self-deprecation involved in, in the way some people take on a new identity and try to discard their old self. And it also, on, on the other hand, is quite narcissistic because you have to think about yourself constantly and you are just absorbed with your own appearance and what other people think of you. So there's this interesting interplay between shame and self-deprecation and shame, uh, narcissism and all of these things. So can you talk a little bit about uh, how is narcissism a defense for shame and how do you think that plays out in terms of gender stuff? Well, I, you know, I, I do think that transition often is the, the creation of this idealized new self, which is at the root of narcissism. It's a rejection of the former damaged, shame-ridden self. You know, you lose that, and then you become this, this you know, ideal new identity. Um, and you can see it, like you said, you were pointing up about the narcissism involved. It's like, you must, you must never use my old name. You must respect my pronouns. I will be, you know, angry if you, you know, if you don't use my name and pronouns, that that's a narcissistic injury, really, if you're misgendering me. Um, it's, it's terribly narcissistic. And people throw the word narcissism around a lot these days. It's just one right. of those words, which is very unfortunate because right. we're trying to say this is narcissistic and it's, it's a very distressing kind of, I suppose, symptom that some people have and that we need to be aware that it exists. But sadly, narcissism often hurts other people. So it's become a term of abuse, which is really unfortunate. It is unfortunate, but you know the the narcissist who is running from shame is defending against shame. What they often do is they try to inflict it on other people, so they don't have they project it onto other people, so they don't have to experience it. So narcissists are often quite abusive because they make themselves feel better by making you feel worse. Um, that's the, the winner loser dynamic is kind of at the heart of narcissism. I'm a winner, you know, and I've got it all. And you, you are the loser and anybody who challenges me better watch out because I'm going to go on the attack to destroy you. This is when you see this in, in extreme forms of narcissism, like vindictive narcissists who, you know, if you, if you challenge their narrative of who they are, they will they will go about destroying you. I've um, I often get outreach from people going through a divorce, who um, are realize that they were married to a vindictive narcissist, male or female, and they they set about because you know saying to someone, I don't want to be married to you anymore. I reject you. That's a narcissistic injury, right? You're saying you're you're not this great person I thought you were. And they can't tolerate that challenge to their sense of self, so they have to destroy the source of the challenge, and they use the court systems, they do their, use their children, they try and get you fired. I mean, the stories, you probably are familiar with these yeah. kind of stories. Oh, sadly, very. <laughs> but yeah. could, I, could I ask you, because what's bringing up to me is when you said they use court cases, and I, I, I didn't know that there was a link with 
with, you know, with mental, certain mental health issues and court cases. And I don't think the legal fields have really grappled with the fact that there's certain conditions such as narcissism and autism as well that are more likely to take court cases, more likely to go into lengthy, lengthy processes of trying Absolutely. to destroy another person. And I don't think the legal world is, is conscious of this, but the, the psychologists are. Well, I mean, the legal profession isn't psychologically very astute. Um, and I do get I get contacted by by lawyers who would like me to give expert testimony in a divorce case involving a narcissist. I won't do it. I won't get involved. It just seems too, I don't know, it seems too risky. But yes, they um, they do make use of the legal system. And um, you see this if if I if I may, I, I think you see this similar kind of behavior in many of the trans rights activists, that people like the two of you who um, dare to challenge the narrative um, and insist that biological sex is real, um, they will go after you and they'll try to destroy your, your profession. They'll bring lawsuits against you. Um, we, you know, we all know people in, you know, we have people in common who this has happened to, right? You know, um, you know, look at Maya Forstata, for instance, example of someone who insisted that sex was real and they went after her mm -hmm. you know, yeah. because, and, and I think what it's, I think for these people, because they have invested so much in this new identity, this idealized false self that anything which challenges it is felt as if it's a narcissistic injury or an attack and then they have to defend themselves and they have to destroy the source of the threat right that, that... so what do we do <laughs> come on then <laughs> joe has the answer everybody <laughs> I, I wish Already. i wish I, I i wish we i had the answer but i think these courageous people who are standing up in the legal system like Alison Bailey is doing right now. I just think this is, we have, it has to become legal. It has to be decided in some sense by the courts that it's not a crime to insist that sex is real or, or to look at some of the other things that goes on to question them. That that's not a crime. Um, I think the, the remedies are legal at this point. Yeah. Well, it's making me curious about something kind of unrelated, but I'm thinking about, you know, your description of what narcissism is. And I'm thinking about adolescent development. And I think, please correct me if I'm wrong or share your thoughts on this. I think there's something that happens within the adolescent developmental period in which we, we all get a little bit narcissistic. Kids are quite focused on themselves as like the center of the universe and trying to like you know, um, imagine that everybody else is thinking about you too and judging your outfit or thinking about what you said in class. Like teens are very self-conscious and there's something narcissistic about that. They also become quite self-absorbed and kind of rude and neglect all of these other relationships, especially within the family. So I'm wondering, like, is there something developmentally normal about periods of our lives where more narcissism shows up? Or would you call it something different? Like, I, I know you also have teenagers. So I'm just wondering what, what you think of this. I, well, I, I think that kind of self-absorption you're talking about is kind of normal. I mean, kind of every teen I have ever known went through that at some point. Um, you, you think you know everything. And um, 
everybody who came before you is like old and out of date. I think that's that's normal and okay. Um, where I see it becoming more toxic is, you know, teens are so preoccupied with popularity and with, you know, where they where they fit into the hierarchy of their peers. And when people become super focused on it, when they mm. when they when they they try to they have to be really popular then i think it starts to veer into something that can be damaging especially when it, if when bullying is involved i think that the narcissists who build themselves up by bullying other people that's pretty toxic um but but i think this whole thing about popularity and where where you fit in is is huge in the whole gender dysphoria area i think that so many of these kids feel like they're losers like they're outsiders because they're so different they don't mm -hmm. they don't fit in with the popular kids and this you know the allure of seeing these trans boys on youtube who are have tens of thousands of likes and they're praised for being um, brave you know it's it's this it's this way to become popular it's this way to break free of that loser self and become this this you know new popular kid and when did you see it kind of rise up as it has done like in the last i don't know 10 years or so when did it when did you notice this trajectory well sadly um i noticed it about 10 years ago um when my own child came out as trans and as I've told you, I had a fair amount of experience with gender issues in my practice, and I felt I understood some of the psychological reasons why my daughter wanted to be a boy. Um, I couldn't be her therapist, obviously, but I couldn't find anybody um, in my community to work from a psychodynamic perspective to sort of explore what did this mean? Um, you know, it was affirmative care even then, you know, and I was, mm. I wasn't on to it back then. I didn't really know this was going on. Um, and, and then, you know, going to the endocrinologist just to find out I was, you know, treated with scorn, contempt because I raised the issue of psycho, psych could we find a, a psychologist mm. who might explore it? This doctor looked at me and said, you're not going to find that. Like I was just some... I don't know, monster. Um, yeah, it was... you, you had successfully worked in this and you'd met other people with gender issues. So I'm surprised you didn't have, let's say, colleagues or friends that you could rely on to provide some sort of depth therapy. Well, the, the, the thing was that we, I practiced for most of my life, my younger life in Los Angeles. And we moved, my family moved to North Carolina when my children were young. We didn't want to bring them up in Los Angeles. We moved to Chapel Hill, North Carolina, where we were living at this point. We had been living there for, you know, 10, 12 years. And I, I had been practicing by Skype even then. I didn't have deep roots in that community. Mm. And when I tried to reach out, I still, I couldn't find anybody. Wow. And even then, when I did find, I found one woman who I thought was 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 lovely, and she was doing her best. And my daughter said she didn't want to work with her anymore, and she found what I now understand to be a gender affirmative therapist online, and insisted we take her to that person. Ten years um, ago. 
10, 10 years ago. Um, it was awful. I'm, you know, it's this, but you've, you've had other parents. You, it's a familiar story, right? Um, yeah. it, she, she was, she kind of radicalized online, which we knew nothing about, um, found a trans community, um, couldn't get any support within our community from the psychological or medical establishment. And, and eventually, because, you know, even though we used the new name and the new pronouns and tried to be supportive, eventually we were, we were deemed to be insufficiently supportive. And um, she's alienated herself from our family, cut off everybody. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. It's, it's awful. It's the worst thing that ever happened to me. Um, working with people who are detransitioning and who are at least open to exploring what gender means has been helpful to me, helps me feel less powerless if I can do something. Mm. Um, but it's, I just, I sympathize with all these parents who I hear the same story from them. Yeah. And, and to go through this around 2012, I mean, that was before the kind of boom, the spike really started around 2015. So yeah. it's pretty remarkable that even then, there, there's never been kind of a robust um, framework that is well understood within the psychological community about how to work with gender in terms of what it means, what needs might it be serving. So, I mean, I've, I've often said in the past that even though this whole phenomenon is very scary, I think it's going to bring to our collective awareness that there's a lack of framework around this issue. And there always has been many gender dysphoric individuals throughout the history of, you know, the last, let's say 50 years have had a hard time finding therapists who will work in a meaningful way with this question. So I think if anything, perhaps this, the, all these tragic stories that you hear about people transitioning and then feeling dissatisfied, maybe the good thing that will come out of this is we'll start to grapple with this question of like, well, how do you work with gender in a meaningful way? And I think that's what I've been trying to think about. And I know many of us are. So it's, uh, I hope something positive will come out of all of these tragic stories. Me too. Unfortunately, the way it seems to me is that we are very much focused on gender now. Suddenly, it is the thing, but in the wrong way. Mm -hmm. I mean, this you know, the the message we're giving to kids about it that's it's a spectrum. You can, you know, you can choose who you're going to be. That it's not binary. It's just like it just seems so confusing. I'm afraid that the pendulum is going to swing in a reactionary way, way the opposite direction. Yeah. We're going to going to get a lot of um, ill-considered laws coming through. Um, and a, but, a, a, lot, a lot of homophobia seems to be coming back mm -hmm. in a way that I, I had never anticipated. So I presume if this tragedy really happened, it certainly seems like a really devastating blow happened to your family. Um, you, you must have watched the rise of trans politics in a, through a very... It must have been very difficult to mm -hmm. watch the last 10 years unfold for you. Very difficult. And I, for a long time, I, I sort of stayed on the sidelines. You know, I, I just, I, until I finally got to the point, I guess it would be about a year ago, where I felt like, you know, I'm a therapist. I, I have skills. I have some understanding. I could do something. I need to get involved to help. Um 
but yeah, it was it was like watching a train wreck. We hope you're enjoying this episode of our podcast. We work very hard to maintain high quality content for this show, and we're grateful to Rhyme and Genspect for supporting us. Rhyme, or Rethink Identity Medicine Ethics, is a nonprofit organization dedicated to improving long-term care for gender variant individuals. Visit rethinkime.org to learn more. And Genspect is an international alliance of parents and professional groups whose aim is to advocate for parents of gender-questioning children and young people. If you'd like to become a patron, you'll have access to weekly transcripts and special Q&As, and you can join our listener community. Now back to the show. I, th- I think it's underestimated how devastating it is for families. I, th- I think it's only when you meet parents that you think, oh my God, what has happened to families in, in this world? is It's inconceivable, I think. I think most people... I live in a very progressive community. Um, I have a very progressive set of friends. I think it's generally <clears throat> viewed that that trans, and they don't know families or children who have gone through this, they think of it as this is the new civil rights frontier, and we're going to be supportive. It's like we supported gay rights. We're now going to support trans rights. And when I step forward and try to educate them, I get a lot of pushback Mm -hmm. um, because they don't really understand. Even when I tell them my story, um, they, they don't, they want to think, they want to think we're the good guys and we're supporting these trans kids and this is great. Um, But yeah, when they hear these other stories like mine or these other parents, you know, you can start to get them to reconsider. So based on your your work and based on your experiences and what you know about gender, what is your conception of gender dysphoria and trans? I mean, we hear it's interesting because within the debates, you often hear people really object to the childhood transition and ROGD transition. And then people will often say, you know, I do believe um, that there are trans people who need to transition, and that's innate and different. But I think this ROGD kid is not a real trans kid, or I don't know if this kid's a real trans kid. So, of course, this is a question that we now have to also really, really think carefully about. What What are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I do think that there are people, you know, Buck, who from a very early age was struggling with these issues and found <clears throat> peace of mind through transition. I think that ought to be left as an option, but it's the old model was, well, you know, statistics. It used to be primarily boys and it manifested early on. Um, and there was this thing, I'm, I'm not even sure what gender dysphoria means for them. I'd like to find out. But nowadays, it just seems like gender dysphoria, gender dysphoria is this term that's used, and it's, it's a thought stopper. It's like once you put that name on it, you stop thinking about it. And, mm-hmm. and I, what I've seen, and I, I think you've said something about this too, Sasha, that it just gets, I think you called it concept creep. It just it covers all these different things now. And if you can't stop and inquire and wonder what all this means, you know, then uh, then you're not helping these kids. Um, just by affirming and saying, oh, you have gender dysphoria. I'm just going to accept that 
you say you've got that and here and i'm going to affirm your identity that that doesn't help anybody yeah it's kind of sometimes i think you know related to this kind of everybody looking for a solution to life this kind of solution focused attitude where it's like if you've got a problem you fix it and right. I I don't think that really really helps very many people. I do know I met somebody recently, and they they had been a butch lesbian, and they got really really tired of being um what basically facing homophobia, basically facing kind of revulsion in people's faces that they were a butch lesbian, maybe holding hands with their wife or something like that. And so this person uh, transitioned to become a man. And was very pleased with the decision and very pleased with the guy. I had a problem and I solved my problem and it's a solution. And for me, that was like, wow, that's that's a whole new way of looking at life. That wouldn't be how I would approach life, if you follow me, because to me, society had a problem that still has. And I have changed myself to to please society in really quite a dark way. Yeah. But and their their view of it was. There was a problem. I sorted it. Everything's cool now. Mm. If if you're talking about who I think you're talking about, that person also knows that he is still a biological woman and doesn't pretend oh, yeah. that he's actually a woman, right? A, yeah. a man, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But still, it's still the same same issue. Still remains though. It's a solution oriented society that is seeking. Right. Where's the pill for this ill? Where's the solution? I've got a problem. Where's the solution? One one of the one of the things that my clients often have a hard time um, accepting is that what they need to do is they need to suffer their pain. They need to endure their pain long enough to figure out a healthy way to cope with it. Because so many of the the, the instant answers, the the sudden cures, the pills, they they don't really do anything. They just prolong the suffering. Um, but it's it's kind of an alien idea to many people that you just you just yeah. have to suffer your pain. Yeah, I um, so so recently I was at the APA, the American Psychiatric Association, with Dr. Ken Zucker and Dr. Stephen Levine and Lisa Marciano, and we gave some presentations. This was just this past week. We're recording this at the end of uh, May, and we we had. Um, a packed room. We were really surprised how many people were there. And it seems like about 25% of the audience was there to ask us questions that ranged from thoughtful and challenging all the way to quite hostile. And one of the moments I was in this, I guess, conversation, somebody asked to speak. This is actually a pretty well-known psychologist or psychiatrist, sorry, And this individual was trying to kind of force me into a position on childhood transition. And it was this back and forth. And then he said, so what are you saying that kids should just suffer with gender dysphoria? And this is exactly your point here, Joe, that it seems inconceivable to some people that if an individual is suffering with something Mm -hmm. that we might say, Let's allow this person to have their process. 
there might be something at the end of that process that is valuable or meaningful or that they grow from. And and I love the quote, I, I don't know it exactly, but I often hear Lisa saying this on This Young in Life, that Carl Jung said something like, um, we don't solve our problems, we grow bigger than them. And so it, it's so important to realize that if there is an experience of suffering, particularly if somebody's a child, they have, you know, hopefully another 70, 80 years ahead of them. We don't know what's going to happen to that suffering. We don't know how it may transform, how it may teach them something valuable. And like you said, Joe, how they might develop a healthy way of coping or growing from it. So it's so limiting to think that if a negative or, or difficult feeling comes up, we have to eradicate it. Just this like reactionary response to our distress. It does not leave any room for human flourishing or growth or transformation. It's so, so limiting. And I think it's it's a product of our the medicalized um, profession we're in now, where, you know, I, as I said before, I'm a dinosaur. People who practice the way I do are kind of dying out and everything is, everything is, there's a pill for something. Um, I don't know. I don't, it's the idea that you, that there's an unconscious mind or that you're struggling with something and it's a process you go through. That seems to be a very dated idea. And what what we've done is like people often talk about how queer theory and gender identity theory has has shaped this. And I'm like, yeah, there's a huge third um, event and it's the medical model. The medical model met queer theory and gender identity theory. And the medical model is stronger than any of any queer theorist or any gender identity uh, person. And it's the medical model that is, is, is ruling this. Because it's saying, what's what's your pain? I'll give you your 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 medicine, and to look for deeper meaning. And this idea, you know, it's like that lovely, well, sad Samuel Beckett quote. You know, you're on Earth. There's no cure for that. It's it's <clears> kind <throat> of like, where did we get the idea that the human condition lives without pain? Like it is part of it. And if a child, for example, might be showing a manifestation of pain perhaps a gender dysphoria or some other way. And if we seek to kind of almost bandage it up with, with medication, then we we haven't addressed the pain of that person. And actually it could get worse. It could get, we, we haven't addressed, for example, the shame that might be rooted in this. And we would be much better off, that person, that individual would be much better off, A, feeling the pain and B, coming to terms with the pain. That That is a much more, I suppose, helpful and valuable experience. But we're running from pain so fast into medication, even though we know, we know, everybody knows that there's a huge amount of problems with medicating pain. This isn't news. like. And, you know, the what's so poignant is, you know, detransitioners, when, when you work with them, is all of that stuff that they were running from is still there. You've got to pick up the pieces and deal with that. And then on top of that, you've got the shame of having made this choice. And there's a lot of shame about having medicalized. And you have to deal with the fact that you might have changed your body for life. I mean, it's a lot to deal with. I mean, it's... 
Yeah. So Joe, have you been working a little bit with detransitioners? Can you just share without any identifying information, of course, just what has that been like? What have you learned so far? Well, it it is, you know, it's kind of confirming what I, my my hypothesis and what I had sort of been hearing in, in the Benjamin Boyce interviews that, that the, the people I've seen were looking for some sort of cure for a whole range of other issues. Um, in one case, it was it was shame about being gay. In another case, it was just it was kind of outside. I think of it like outsider shame, just a really distinctive, you know, nonconformist kind of person. Mm. And and you know, you you can then transition to become a normal cis person, right? Or whatever you, however you want to think about it. But it's it's the the transition is to to normal. Mm. Um, Mm-hmm. And and then you know, fortunately, painfully though, they 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 realize at some point that all the things they were running from were still there, and the, the transition cured nothing. Gosh, that's very difficult. Yeah. Have you um, received any pushback for sharing some of your views or for taking the stance that you have? Um. Yes. So more, more personal information. Um, I, I was married and had three biological children. And when we divorced, I, I'm now married to a man. And I was sitting, I was an officer and a board member of my local LGBT center. And when I got involved in this space and told them my views and asked them to read this paper, these are my friends. I like them a lot. And I said, if this is going to pose a problem for you, I, I will step down. But I feel like I need to. This is mm. what I'm doing with my career. And they said, yes, thank you. Please go away. What was the paper? Wow. It's this paper I was describing. Um, it's it's um, when, when gender transition is a cure for shame, kind of putting together a lot of the ideas we've talked about and, and my own experience, um, both as a therapist and as a father. Wow. wow. They said to you to leave. Yeah. I think because the, the the CEO, the current CEO, had had experience when he was in New York of the trans rights activists causing trouble. And he just didn't want to invite that kind of attack. And I, I understood that, which is why I offered to step down. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's really powerful. Um, this sounds like a fascinating paper, and I'm imagining that soon it will be published somewhere. We'll we'll definitely keep our listeners posted when it is. Yeah, thank you. Could yeah. I ask you? We're coming up towards the end, and I know I asked you before uh, slightly flippantly, but I, I want to ask one more time: If you have a narcissist in your life, mm. what is your kind of what would you kind of give a few guidelines to maybe a parent or a sibling or you know, even even somebody whose parent, if you have a narcissist, how would you handle them? Well, I um, my advice is to bear in mind that shame is always the issue, and your your job being related to a narcissistic person, unfortunately, is to be incredibly sensitive to how you're going to impact their self-esteem that it's always about shame and self-esteem and you know just to be very cautious to do not to do things that are going to invite attack they're going to invite retaliation because 
that's that's what happens when they experience a narcissistic injury is they'll come after you. Um, my other advice is if you have an option is to get as far away as possible. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say that seems like a very um, limiting life for the loved one. But yeah, I guess if somebody's dealing with uh, somebody with that level of narcissism, it's probably best to distance oneself. Well, and you know, I think you, if it, if it's a child, that's one thing, right? But if it's an, if it's a, you know, an elective relationship, I think you also need to look inward and say, why am I in this relationship with somebody who probably doesn't have any empathy for me, probably isn't able to, to take my needs into account. Why am I here? And can people develop narcissism for a, you know a period of time and then move beyond it? In my experience, the you know the hardcore narcissist doesn't come for therapy and doesn't change unless life deals them like a pretty severe blow, like they've they've sabotaged their life. Um, I, I kind of analogize it to that the way people often talk about alcoholics is that they have to hit bottom. You know, I've had some people come to me on, under those conditions, um, but they make really challenging, challenging clients, and they don't. They tend not to change. I think it's a really entrenched personality structure, structure that just doesn't change much. Wow, so interesting. Sorry to be so pessimistic. No, it, it's okay. I mean, I think talking about the realities of what we see clinically is part of the reason we're here. So, thank you for that. Well, um, is there anywhere particular people can find you? I know you have a fantastic blog. I've been reading it and you have a website and you've written so many books. Where can people find you? Um, the best place is um, afterpsychotherapy.com. That's my personal blog, which I haven't written a lot lately, but I, there's, you know, there's hundreds of posts that I've written on all sorts of different psychological topics. Um, yeah. And if, if anybody wants to reach out to me, my contact information is there also. Yeah. And you're, of course, also on the, the ghetto website as a clinician listed there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Joe Burgo, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Great talking with both of you. Thank you. Thanks, Joe. Thanks for joining us this week on Gender, A Wider Lens. This podcast is sponsored by Rhyme and Genspect, and listener support means a lot to us. The best way to help is to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Follow us on social media, and if you'd like to become a patron, you'll have access to weekly transcripts of the show, special Q&As, and you can join our listener community. Just go to our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash widerlenspod. Our discussions are for educational purposes only and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services. 